Welcome, Paradise Paradoxians, Moonbug, Space Travelers, Earthlings, Galactic Parasites, and Universe Creators. <laughs> Welcome to the Paradise Paradox. Today I'm presenting the next part of my interview and conversation with Andrew Levine, otherwise known as Andraki, talking about his idea of a book as a collaborative project, putting up various pieces of it online so people can present counter-arguments and evidence so that can eventually be included as part of the book, creating an overall stronger philosophical work, a crowdsourced work of philosophy. Uh, at the beginning of the conversation, we're talking about his idea that the universe started as, as the Big Bang and then we have consciousness and eventually human consciousness. And by following these trends, we can perhaps predict what might happen next. So, remember you can jump on to donate.theparadiseparadox.com if you have a little tip for us, a few dollars, a few satoshis, uh, that's much appreciated. Uh, it does light up our faces a little bit, more than a little bit, uh, to see when those donations come in. So, head on over to donate.theparadiseparadox.com. Remember you can check out Andrike on Steemit, steemit, S-T-E-E-M-I-T.com slash at Andrachy, A-N-D-R-A-R-C-H-Y. Uh, so, let's get into it. does come after human consciousness or do you do you have uh, a few concepts that you can um, throw out there I think that this brings up uh, an interesting aspect of this project that might seem a little unrelated but I wanted to make sure to talk about which is that I'm going to be posting this book in pieces on Steemit and then inviting people to participate in the creation of the material itself by submitting in the comments and as as you are very well aware um, the beauty of Steemit is that when you contribute through comments you can actually make money uh, by gaining upvotes if your comment is uh, well received by the community by me it will receive upvotes and so you will be able to make a little bit of, of currency from that contribution and I think what I'll probably wind up doing is for really good contributions I'll be supplementing whatever the crowd rewards them with with rewards of my own uh, but then more importantly I will be I'll take any good feedback even if if people disagree with with any of the points that I make I'm happy to listen or or, or incorporate any divergent opinions, of course, if they're well-reasoned and well-articulated and substantiated with evidence. If they're substantiated with evidence, then, I, then I, what I'll do is I will change my position, incorporate the new evidence, and all contributions that people give me will be over-the-top like, over credited. I'll be sure to credit anybody who contributes. What I'd love to happen is, through this process, to create a book that... I can then package as a whole 
and then just be like, this was contrib this part was contributed by this user, you know, and give them full credit and have the, the end product be a, a, a really crowdsourced work of philosophy. And I think that that would really make it better. And, and, and what, what I think would, would, would really be the most helpful, I mean, I know that the easiest, the thing that tends to happen the most is people who disagree with you want to talk to you. But what I think would be even more valuable is if people who do understand my perspective or do appreciate the work that I'm doing, if those people submit articles, submit uh, studies, submit uh, events or stories that help um, present this perspective, that would make it, so, I mean, that would just really improve the book. It would just make it a better book. You know, there's only, we're, we all have such limited bandwidth. There's only so much research that I can do. There's only so much evidence I can gather. And, and the real benefit of working with other people is that they'll often t tell you about something that, that you couldn't even have thought to ask. They might say, well, you know, you're, you know about this, this, and that, but, you know, I study some obscure thing that I don't even know about. You know, their field of study might be some obscure branch of mathematics. And they might go, you know, this is completely unrelated, but it's, re it's remarkably similar. Like, that's the shit that I love. I love when, when, when you're exploring a powerful idea, what you tend to find is that it pops up everywhere. It pops up in the most unexpected places. And that lends so much power to it because it shows that it's not a narrow thing. You know, like uh, economics is plagued by this type of logic where you have economists trying to explain everything in economic terms. Like in a, in a recent video of mine, I made the, I, I have a video called The First Principles of Economics. And the first, first principle was that people want stuff that people make. And somebody responded in the comments, they were, they were going, well, why do people want stuff? And why do people make stuff? Is it because of scarcity? What role does scarcity play in this? And scarcity being more or less an economic concept. And my response to him was, no, 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 no. Science, biology, linguistics, many fields of science adequately cover the fact that human beings both want stuff and make stuff, as well as universal human experience. That's why it's a first principle. If it was only a first principle because of an economic explanation, then it would be purely circular logic. And that's what happens so often in economics is that so many people believe that every economic phenomenon has to be explained in terms of economics, that what they wind up doing is going, we developed this model because it's the best model, model we are currently, it's the most accurate model we're currently capable of creating. And then they go, and this model must be true because it's the most accurate model we're currently capable of creating despite the fact that at the time they create it, they know that it's inaccurate. They know that it's a pragmatic decision. You know, like, uh, like, like as we discussed before, the concept of equilibrium. 
And Professor Steve Keen does a great job of talking about this and trying to uh, dissolve this shared delusion that just predominates the profession that, no, equilibrium was created by people who knew that it was not real. When you go back and you look at the original economic thinkers who came up with the concept of equilibrium, they were saying, don't believe this. We're not saying that this is true. We're saying this is a tool, a device for thinking about economics. And then people just repeated it over and over and over again that they forgot that the very people who made it didn't intend it to be accepted as dogma. Wow, that was a tangent. Uh, <laughs> what yeah. was my point? So your, your point is like with with economics, like with with anything, you have to sit, like pick a starting point and say, actually, this stuff outside of out, outside this line isn't actually economics and we're, you know, let's not get into that. <laughs> right. And what does that have to do with the evolution of information? <laughs> uh, what does that have to do with my book? There must be a connection. That's the problem when you go off on tangents like that. The important point, which is that this is something I've, this is an insight I've gained with age that I personally did not have. Uh, as a youth, which was, you don't always have to say everything you want to say. Uh, stick to the important points. And the important, <laughs> and the important point is that as of right now, I'm not certain what comes next for humanity, for consciousness, and more importantly, the evolution of information. I hope and I believe and I think that by combining this philosophy and this work with the power of the crowd that together we could, we could figure it out. But the most important thing, and uh, I want to draw attention to another user, a guy named Luke Stokes, at Luke Stokes. You've come across his work? Yep, yep. He, he wrote an article that was really interesting. I highly re recommend people check it out, where he talks about artificial intelligence, um, and super intelligences and things like that. And, uh, and when I read that, I think that illustrated this point, which is that part of the problem when people think about what's going to happen in the future is, um, is really a framing issue. It's really a, um, a perspective issue. It ties back in with the stuff we've been talking about throughout our conversation of a lot of the time those arguments are based on cultural assumptions, cultural beliefs that are irrational. And so what you often see with those explorations is that um, while well-meaning, while thoughtful, while intelligent, are themselves irrational because they're founded on irrational cultural constructs. And I, I believe that the insight that my book or my philosophy or my perspective will give is that when you start, when you reframe that question of what's going to happen in the future of intelligence, right? Whether it's artificial intelligence, human intelligence, super intelligence, whatever. When you reframe the question is, well, what we think of as intelligence now 
is some manifestation of the evolution of information more generally. Therefore, if we want to know what's going to happen in the future, what we should be asking is, how is information going to continue to evolve? Right? So, human intelligence, conscious intelligence, is a consequence of the evolution of information. The elemental particle of the universe, which is the most fundamental unit of information, is what's driving, the evolution of that is what's driving us, right? You know, the, the universe conspired to make us. Why? Because the universe itself is evolving information. So we exist because the evolution of information made it so. And so if something else is going to exist in the future, then it will necessarily have to be because the evolution of information will make it so. And so people come at this question from what I call a homocentric perspective of it, where they go, well, how is, what is artificial intelligence going to be? And generally, the, the thought process, the conclusions, tend to be something the, along the lines of a really, 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 really smart person. The Turing test has that, that anthropocentric um, uh, assumption. Like, if, if it can look, if it can sound like a human, if it can fool us into thinking it's a human, then it's intelligent. But that's, you know, that's a very basic way of looking at it. Absolutely, absolutely. And of course, um, as members of the tech, whatever you want to call us, we all have uh, insane reverence. Sorry, I don't mean uh, incredible reverence for Alan Turing. Uh, I, I personally do. But yes, I completely agree that that is a, an excellent example of that, of that homocentric, uh, anthropocentric um, habit that we have, which even really goes back to, to Galileo, uh, Copernicus? Was it Copernicus or Galileo who disrupted the idea that the earth was the center of the universe? Uh, I think Copernicus was first, but everybody kind of ignored him till Galileo. So, and I think that's just a kind of more macro, uh, demonstration of that same tendency is to think that that we're the center of the universe. And, and what's ironic is that when guys like you and me talk to people, correct me if I'm wrong, we're simultaneously telling people that humans aren't the center of the universe, but at the same time, in many ways, we are the center of the universe, you know, um, as, as conscious minds, as, as you know, um, that we are and we aren't. It's not, it's not necessarily one or the other. Um, but <clears throat> so, so yeah, with, with the question of what comes next, you know, everybody is, is um, pretty, pretty certain on AI. Um, and that seems, that, that feels right, you know, uh, artificial intelligence or artificial intelligence combined with human intelligence. 
for example, through Elon Musk's proposal of some kind of neural net to limit the bottleneck between the human-machine interface. Um, you know, that, that looks like the future of, of intelligence. But of course, you know, we have to answer the question of what is intelligence? And, I, and that's definitely one of the things I would like to cover in the book is, well, how does this, you know, how does the evolution of information, how would we define intelligence from that perspective? And I think that it's a very, it's a, it's a meaningfully different definition than what other, uh, than common definitions of intelligence. And that definition, I think, would wind up being something like the ability to receive, store, mutate, and transmit information. So I, I think that that would be uh, the definition of intelligence that I would wind up going with. Yeah. Well, so, sometimes I, I use this, something that can uh, formulate something, like imagine or, or uh, come up with an idea and then set out to create it. Right. And so... One of the, uh, the, the insights I, I think that uh, this philosophy would have is, is to ask the question, where did that idea come from? Mm. Right? You know, we generate ideas, and this goes back to the question of why we make stuff, and do we make stuff? And of course, we do make stuff. We constantly make stuff. We constantly create ideas. Um, ideas are fundamentally creative. Uh, most people might not agree with this. Um, most, many people might not have thought about this, but it's very, very obviously true that human beings are constantly creating things, whether they're in the real world or not. We are constantly creating stuff. I mean, your thoughts are very, very original in that they've probably never been had exactly like you're having them before. And that is an incredibly creative act. But at the same time, those thoughts are based on other thoughts uh, that other people before you generated and transmitted to you. So you received information, and then you mutate that information into, into new ideas, relatively new ideas, right? Because they're not truly new. Um, so, and I, think, and, I, and I think this might lend some perspective into our previous discussion. In that what happens, if you had a truly new idea, uh, it, it, would only, it could only be interpreted as sheer insanity, as sheer nonsense. In fact, nonsense. Because you would have to articulate it in new sounds, in new words, in new... In, it, it, would, it would literally make zero sense. Uh, if you articulated a truly new idea, meaning an idea that was not based in any way on any idea that had been created by any other person before you. Right. Not, not based in this world. It would, right. Yeah, it would be a completely alien. Right. And so what's interesting is the question that I'm only thinking about right now, which is, you know, your experience your experience with a psychotic episode. To me, that seems like a potentially very valuable resource to the human collective 
to have people who on occasion um, can have ideas that are so creative, that are so new, that are so different, that they appear what we call insane. But all we call, but, but our word insane, as, as I, we talked about before, right? The word's insane, the word's crazy. They're just on the level of God. They're meaningless. They're meaningless words. They're just words that we use to describe something that we don't, that our uh, mental psychological framework is currently incapable of understanding. And so what we were talking about in our previous discussion was about improving the abstract frameworks that we have in our, in our minds. And notice I'm intentionally not saying brain. I'm saying our minds. And what we're trying to do is to broaden those abstract frameworks so as to enable us to talk about experiences like the ones you had without resorting to, com to completely meaningless words like crazy and insane. Yeah, I'm in. Yeah, I'm in. Yeah, I'm in.